This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 126. I am so jazzed to share this episode with y'all today. I got to hang out with Dr. Nicole LaPera. You might know her as the holistic psychologist over on social media. Dr. Nicole does work on self-healing on reparenting our adult selves and really getting to know our social programming so that we can respond with intention and take ownership over our healing journey. Today, we are diving into how to reparent yourself as an adult when you're parenting the tiny humans at the same time. A lot of triggers come up when you start to parent your own kiddos and you realize a lot of things from your childhood. This was such a fun conversation. I felt like I could have talked to Nicole forever. I had to literally be like, oh, wow, we've been talking for a while. I have to cut it off. (laughs) She is a gem. In the last few weeks, some folks have been calling Dr. Nicole in to take a look at what this work looks like and how to do it in an inclusive manner for black folks, indigenous folks, and people of color who are continuing to live with trauma And I think this is something that's really important to think about and to talk about and to be having conversations about. What does it look like to do this work when you're living in a state of continuous trauma or when you aren't safe? In order to dive deep into doing work in anti-racism, reparenting ourselves is crucial. This is going to be a key step in the journey. I'm really jazzed to put this episode out there and for y'all to start building these tools and utilizing them in your everyday life so that you can move from living in your subconscious to living with consciousness, with intention, to be able to rewrite patterns and habits and narratives. If you're digging this work and you want to dive deeper, head to seedreparenting.com and snag our reparenting course where we support you with tools to do this work every day, to move through this in our village with support on this journey. Remember, you do not have to do this alone. All right, babe, let's dive in.
Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey, everybody. Today, I get to hang out with Dr. Nicole LaPera. You may know her as the holistic psychologist over on Instagram. I feel like you basically just slayed Instagram in the last couple of years. (laughs) You were like, Instagram done, check. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for hanging out with me today. Of course, Alyssa. Thank you so, so much for having me. And yeah, the Instagram whole world has been a whirlwind in many ways, but I think the topic that you and I are going to talk about today represents a lot of the reason why the account has grown so yeah. astronomically and so quickly, because I think one, so most of the topics I'm talking about, especially reparenting, which I talk a lot about, is so universal. Um, yeah. So I think that's what I attribute to, but yes, some slaying, I guess, has <laughs> happened, and it's it's been quite a whirlwind over here, but thank you. Um, the work you're doing, like I said before, when you're chatting is incredible, and I'm honored to dive in a little deeper with you today. Thanks, babe. Let's start by just letting people know what is reparenting? What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I define what reparenting is, um, it's a process, (laughs) quite long-term for most of us, um, that we go through typically in adulthood. Um, The way I conceptualize it, it's, it's kind of the relearning of how to identify and meet our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual needs. Because I'm of the belief that a lot of us are struggling in those areas to even realize we have needs in any or all of those, of those sectors and or we're struggling to meet them in a way that works for us, largely based on our past experiences and modeling or lacking in modeling that we were given you know, when we were very young in a completely dependent state where we needed our needs to be met by someone else. So unfortunately, a lot of us into adulthood are carrying patterns that don't serve us as the adult, the unique adult that we have become. So what reparenting is short and simple. It's, it's like I said, a a long-term journey in adulthood where a lot of us are kind of returning home, finding the ways to connect with our physical, our emotional, our spiritual selves in ways that work for us, which involves for many of us undoing a lot of those conditioned habits that are keeping us stuck, unfulfilled and sometimes even downright upset and miserable and, you know, on edge and in fight or flight and all the things. Yeah. Yeah. We have talked a little bit over at Seed about um, our subconscious and our conscious selves, but what uh, folks have been like DMing and, and showing up with is like the surprise for how much we live in our subconscious when we're sharing stats and figures of like, uh, what it, it, it even breaking down things like anxiety. People are like, oh, that's my subconscious? Like what? Um, and so let's dive into that a little bit of like what this social programming kind of does and, and how I, I think one of the key things that I've learned from you in this journey that helped me continue through in a, in a greater way was really that we're not trying to get rid of these things. They're not things that you can get rid of. They're a part of us. They make up who we are. And, and so what does that look like to build this awareness and, and truly be able to respond with intention rather than reacting from that place of subconscious? Yeah, absolutely. And you're saying something, Alyssa, that's really important. 
you know, they are parts of who we are. And I really want to highlight that the part piece, because a lot of us, not, I am a human who had known anxiety for as long as I can remember. So up until, you know, I went through my dark night and my healing, I would have actually embodied and referred to myself and embodied I'm an anxious person. Mm -hmm. So what I mean when I say that is a lot of us are defining, you know, ourselves, the whole of us or who we believe we are in our totality, you know, based on a lot of these conditioned patterns. And, you know, because I come through and, and I can relate to so many of them and, you know, I've healed so many of them and I've developed, I've created that space, right. To begin to exercise choice around you know, new behaviors, which over time, when repeated consistently enough, we turn into new habits, mm -hmm. right? New condition yeah. patterns. I've done that. So I know now that that is possible. Um, but first and foremost, yeah, it's alarming how often we are in that, you know, the computer, the autopilot, right? That mm -hmm. the thing that's driving our human car for us. And mm -hmm. that that is pervasive. That's not only, whoa, what are my daily habits, right? A lot of us think of our autopilot. Oh yeah, what do I you know, I'm on autopilot, you know, getting my breakfast. I do it the same way every day, you know, my lunch, et cetera. It's beyond that. You know, we are on autopilot with narratives, voices in our head, stories we tell ourselves again about who we are. Most of us are missing a big part of the story about who we are. Um, so the work really is first and foremost, identifying that reality that we are in that autopilot, that we are living, you know, through the, in those conditioned patterns and learning how to show up differently. And so the way I talk about showing up differently, right, is in that conscious state where we can observe ourselves, observe these patterns and the pulls to gravitate us into those patterns because that's there. Again, that's part of this subconscious part of our mind. Um, it desires the familiar, which to put it really simply is that which has been done before, right? Yeah. So we become stuck in these loops these patterned loops until we become conscious, until we start to observe that patterning. And then as a lot of us talk about, right, create the space as a language where we begin mm -hmm. to use, where we can see the patterning in action, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, we can develop that observer, that self that's kind of behind the scenes, the self that actually embodies all of who we are. And then once we begin to do that, then we get to exercise choice where we get to, like I said earlier, create new behaviors, which turn into behaviors and thought too. practice new stories that tell the whole of who I am. Um, and that happens over time. Um, so it's identifying, right. The pattern or the, the fact that we're unconscious, subconscious, so often identifying the patterns that don't work for us. So in those areas of reparenting, right. How do I meet my physical needs? Well, let's look, let's spend a week, two weeks, a month, just observing what my habits are emotionally. How connected am I to my emotions? How disconnected? I know I was quite disconnected, right? Are there some emotions that I, I know how to cope with? Are there some emotions I don't, right? Spiritually, do I have a sense of that self, right? Do I, am I connected? Um, so as we become observational first and we see how we're doing in those areas, what a lot of us will see is, you know, that older patterning. Some of us will know where it came from. Mm -hmm. Some of us won't. And I get this question a lot too. Well, do I need to know? Not necessarily because we're living the pattern and the right. point is to create that space, right? To create the change. Yeah. And so I want to give some folks some like examples that feel 
potentially tangible to what this looks like. I was in coaching last week, was working with a client who has been working on anxiety and fear. And one of her biggest uh, fears is safety for her kiddos, right? That like, if I can't see them, they're going to get hurt. And what's that going to mean about me as a parent? And so she's been doing a lot of this work and she'd started to get to a place where she could notice it and pause and be able to respond with intention and just doing all this work in, in this COVID season where it's just their little family. And now all of a sudden her parents are coming over to the house more. And she was like, oh my gosh, I am seeing it as an observer, but now I'm watching it with my mom doing this. I'm like, oh man, that's like where this came from. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we say like Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but this is also in these like habits and patterns, right? This is like our conditioning from our childhood. We'll say I opened my mouth, my mom came out and, uh, (laughs) and like so many times I'm like, Ooh, Margaret, there you are. My partner will just say like, all right, Margaret, uh, (laughs) that's my mom's name. Uh <laughs> and I think like as we are starting to do this work and 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 building the awareness piece of ooh, what is that? And and a lot of folks come to us with at seed, kind of starting often with a little bit of a basis of what they know they don't want to repeat, right? And what we've started mm-hmm. to see is this real big pendulum swing. Yes. Of like Mm-hmm. Nobody talked to me about emotions. There was no safe space for me. And so we're going to talk about everything all of the time. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and kiddos are like, actually, I don't want to talk about it right now. <laughs> and we're like, no, you were going to sit down and talk about it. And we're really working to help folks find that middle ground where we aren't reacting from circumstances and instead mm-hmm. can respond with intention. Um, can you speak to this journey a little bit? I know you aren't a parent and you also mm-hmm. are a professional in this field. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Labine, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash voices. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down, 
Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Yeah, 100%. I can relate to that. I mean, the language I use to describe that, Alyssa, is overcompensation. And it's very well-intentioned, right? I've lived a hurt. This is what we all do. Our mind, right? The organ is our brain. The mind is like, you know, all the functioning. When we, when really simple, something hurt, my mind knows that that thing hurt, right? And essentially it's going to try to avoid that hurt again in my life. Then again, by extension, my children, I don't know what it is to feel about something I created. I can imagine a whole lot of love and a whole lot of fears, the two things, right? That come to mind. So I get it. So very well intentioned, right? Okay. So if I had this pain as a child, right? Talk, not having anyone to talk to feelings about with my feelings, that's use your example, very well intentioned. So I had a similar experience personally in my journey with boundaries. I come from a very boundaryless home, um, meaning there was no limits, no, no differentiation between where I ended and where my entire family began. Um, our emotions were all a ball. Um, it, I have a family motto of always something. Um, our favorite something is the newest stressor. And now Alyssa, a stress could be right. The, the lawn didn't get you know, cut to their liking, or it could be my mom is actually in the hospital and ill as she had been, right? So really spans, but we had this collective experience of these emotions. So that's what I mean when I mean enmeshment, right? One person is stressed. The lawn didn't pertain to me when I was a child, right? However, because the feeling of the family was stressed, it did. So this always something. So I did a little of that overcompensation as well in terms of boundary. I got really rigid with my boundaries, with my family in particular. Um, I actually went no contact before I was able to find, you know, that, that middle ground. Uh, something as you were talking came to mind because I find it interesting. That's in that moment, right? Mom, dad, caregiver, whomever is in a lot of ways still acting from their vantage point, right? So I'm going to, again, by extension, I'm trying to protect my child, Right. But in that moment, it's a little more still about the parent or the caregiver, mm -hmm. right. And managing their feelings instead of looking to the child, right. Johnny, Janet, whomever, you know, and seeing what the child needs because I'm of the belief. And I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Kids are the most intuitive creatures well beyond yeah. us as adults, as us as adults, a lot of us have become so disconnected from intuition. Yes. They need help to be shaped. Right. And they need guidance. Like I said, they're dependent. Mm -hmm. But it's so interesting. So as I was hearing you talk, I was saying that's so interesting because in that moment, right, the child and their needs is in a sense being bypassed, mm -hmm. right? Because the parent in a lot of ways is still trying to find their middle and is responding to themselves. Right. And this is why this is a goddamn hard, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because the parent hypothetically, you know, and this is why a lot of us resonate with books, a book I'm always talking about is, um, you know, adult children, emotionally immature parents. You know, a lot of us come to the awareness that we were not equipped because our parents weren't equipped um, and we are limited, you know, and we all, I think, resonate a lot with that. And we're very much trying our best. Um, so it's really being aware and learning how to contain what I'm feeling about a situation 
so that I can attune myself to what my child needs in that moment. But I'm happy you brought up that overcompensation because I think that happens a lot in a very well-intentioned manner, um, but it does miss that mark. It misses that balance point. And I guess what I'm offering now is on some level, it misses that attunement to not what I need in this moment. What do you need? Child, little, little human, tiny human in front of me. Totally. Yeah. And I think one of the key things to doing what you're just saying is, is having a regulated nervous system, right? That if we are going to respond with intention, we have to be regulated. And that you were saying we had, uh, the emotions were collective, right? That of of course they are because of mirror neurons and they're going to, everyone's going to fire off each other, right? Like Zach comes in from work and if he's pissy, I could be in a great mood. And all of a sudden I'm like, why am I pissy? (laughs) He just brought that shit into the house. (laughs) And I have to be mindful of that and and regulated. um, we share a lot that a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a dysregulated child. And and there's this narrative, I think, in, in parenthood that taking care of yourself comes last. And mm-hmm. let's chat about what what role taking care of yourself and and meeting your needs for your central nervous system plays in being able to do the reparenting work. Yeah, foundational. And I, I agree. I, I too have come through, you know, family culture systems that have, you know, kind of professed in many ways this idea of, you know, caring for self is selfish. Mm-hmm. Right. I even heard this um, when I did make gestures at putting up boundaries with my family in particular. I was very much, you know, granted that offering that, yes, this is indeed selfish, Nicole. You shouldn't be doing this. Um, and I do think that this idea of selflessness is other before me is highly problematic because you're right. So one of that state, one of the states of dependency that you, you know, as you know, and I'm sure listeners have possibly heard in childhood is within our, our nervous system. We cannot regulate ourselves. That's why infants cry, right? They're dysregulated mm-hmm. and they quite literally need another human in a calmer nervous system mm-hmm. or in a parasympathetic state to bring that child right from that sympathetic into that parasympathetic. Most of us haven't had that grounded parent. I know I didn't. My mother, so describing myself as an anxious child, I'm sure you can imagine, right? I had a very anxious mother. Um, So her nervous system was was completely dysregulated. So without that home base in infancy, right, where we need this person to teach my nervous system how to go from, right, activate it to, to that calm state, over time, the goal is for the child, right, to internalize that so that they can then, they have a healthy nervous system that can do that itself. Mm-hmm. Most of us don't have that parent. So we do end up in cycles of dysregulation, which is why when I talk about, you know, the, the word that we like to say is quote unquote triggers, when we're emotionally activated, those core wounds, why it's so goddamn hard to choose a new response in that moment because we are dysregulated and we are, you know, in some version of a survival mode that trying to preserve ourselves. So to be there for a child, we have to, part of the reason, one of the main reasons why I work and why I call myself now holistic is because I do understand that it's not just the mind. We cannot just think new thoughts Mm -hmm. and, you know, fully change everything. We have to acknowledge the body in particular, the nervous system. So without that foundational balance where I as a parent or I as a human, right, can regulate my nervous system, I'm never going to be able to help my child regulate. And I'm also really going to struggle, you know, in those moments of reactivity with choosing that new response, because to some extent I have lost control, 
and my nervous system is dictating what it needs to do or what it feels it needs to do to keep myself safe, um, which is why I think a lot of us can be really shameful and hard on ourselves. I know I could every time I had that eruption, right? That small, so this is what I carried, right? Always something in childhood led to a version of always something in adulthood mm-hmm. where it would be the smallest, you know, kind of event and I would lose my shit. Mm-hmm. And after the fact, I would feel shameful at what I did, what I said, how I was when I lost my shit. And on some level, I always could acknowledge that something felt out of alignment in that losing my shit moment. It actually didn't feel like I meant it. And then over time, right, as I cultivated that consciousness, I came to realize that I didn't, that that was that remnant of that overactive nervous system. Mm -hmm. So what it was for me was building in my balance. Um, What it is for parents is building in that foundational balance so that they can attune and help regulate their child and or give themselves, you know, the opportunity to begin to break out of some of these patterns of reactivity. I, my wheels are turning as you were talking about that. Cause I was thinking not only like, do we beat ourselves up over it, but we also can bring shame to the tiny humans when they're in a reactive state, when they're hitting, mm-hmm. when they're kicking, when they're biting and we choose shame in that moment because we are embarrassed or we want that behavior to stop. And we're like, we know that they know what to say, or we know that they know that that's not allowed or that that hurts somebody. Right. But they're reacting. And I, I had a, a mom reach out a couple weeks ago who was like, Uh, I'm just having like a terrible day. I feel so bad. I keep snapping at my kids. It was like 3 p.m. And I was like, cool, tell me about your day. And this is just like in DMs on Instagram. She walks me through kind of her day. And I was like, cool, what did you eat? Like, what have you done? And we went like a little deeper and she had like eaten her kids scraps and like really just been like picking up the scraps throughout the day. And I was like, babe, can you imagine if you barely fed your kids food throughout the day by three o'clock, if they made it to three o'clock before they were yelling, I would be like, wow, they're doing great. (laughs) Right. Like we wouldn't expect them to do that. So why are we doing that with ourselves? Mm -hmm. Powerful. Absolutely. And that's back to this idea of selfish, right? Because whether or not it's acknowledging my physical needs of of hunger in the moment, um, whether or not it's acknowledging the need for my nervous system to be balanced, which Mm -hmm. might, you know, incorporate some sort of breath work training or any sort of, you know, vagus nerve toning exercise. Um, Maybe it's, you know, I'm doing some work on my own internal world and my inner child and some of the the emotional realm and, you know, really beginning to explore my emotions. You know, and I say explore, because if you're someone like myself who had spent so much of my life dissociated, emotions were completely new for me. All I knew was stress. That I was confident in stress. <laughs> I wasn't so great in coping with it. But sadness, anger, those mm-hmm. were new. Um, and then furthermore, I had to learn a new toolkit. So back to this idea of selfish. If you know we don't put ourselves first and we have partners, loved ones, tiny humans, mm-hmm. right? The the disservice really is going to be to that relationship, right? Or, and ultimately to then the child who is dependent on you showing them and you modeling them. So putting ourselves first, whether it's eating and making sure our body, I mean, sleep, I know sleep for especially new Mm -hmm. parents, um, is, but a, but a concept Yeah, (laughs) difficult (laughs) though, right? Like very hard. If my body isn't getting the rest it Mm -hmm. needs, of course, there's some circumstances where, you know, it's unavoidable, but we really need to prioritize 
reparenting the topic, right? Caring mm-hmm. for our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual self so that then we can care for others, our children. And it isn't selfish. It's actually going to give us the best opportunity to show up how we need to, when we need to. Yeah. I love it so much. We, um, in the village talk a lot about sensory rich activities in the central nervous system for the tiny humans, right? Like we have shared, I've, I work with OTs a lot and, um, that this, input lasts in our body for about 90 minutes to two hours. We talk a lot about what this looks like for kids. Maybe it's wrapping them up like a burrito and giving them that a deep pressure input or popping them on a swing so they can get some vestibular input and, or it's eating every couple hours for the interceptive system. And, and I think we often leave ourselves out of that conversation of like, we're also human too. And we need that input every couple hours too. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think really ties into boundaries and like, how do we set boundaries within a family system where we are the parent so that we can take care of ourselves? What does that look like to do if you didn't grow up seeing that? Yeah. I mean, on the, on the deepest level, we need to shift the narrative, whether it is of selfishness or, you know, whatever the narrative is that's preventing us from feeling worthy because that's going to be the deepest work. Cause a lot of us, you know, if we aren't connected to why, you know, we have to prioritize ourselves, or, or if we don't get connected to why it's going to be really hard to enact is the language I use the boundary and maintain it. Right. So getting really connected to, and really understanding and over time coming to believe that it isn't selfish and that it is important. And I say that very intentionally because beliefs don't change overnight. If you, like me, were raised with this idea that others first, you know, is, is the selfless, valiant thing to do, coming across a podcast and the work that you do, you know, on the daily and hearing this is just going to be a thought. You know, I, I always joke, yeah. I say your subconscious is going to roll its eyes. It's not going to believe it. So it's practicing into that belief that over time you come to, I understand that it is important. That's the deepest part though, because it's the beliefs um, you know, in often in opposition <laughs> that keep us from doing the thing that we need to do. And then we have to acknowledge that it's going to be difficult to keep the promises, to keep the boundary up. Because for a lot of us, like I acknowledged earlier, these are new words. These are new concepts. Many of us did come from a home that had some version of codependency like myself. So there's going to be an inherent discomfort in that which is unfamiliar. So yeah. boundaries, important boundaries, you know, for caring for ourselves, for reparenting the adult human when we're in a village of little ones, right? Mm-hmm. Usually around time, time is going to be one, right? How much time do you want to set aside for whatever your act of repairing or acts of reparenting become, right? Mm-hmm. Carving out the, the hours, the minutes in the day, you know, where you can do that and then protecting it, upholding yourself to that, mm-hmm. going into your bath or going into your on your meditation cushion when you said you were, Mm -hmm. right? That's when it's going to be hard because this is when a lot of us are plagued with two things. Externally, maybe everyone's kicking and screaming and yelling because where is mom? And on the the surface, it's going to be a a violation of expectation, right? If mom is ever available 24 hours a day and now if mom decides, you know what? This half hour is mom's, the family's just going to be a bit confused at first because, right? So it just could be on the simple, oh, this is new. I'm not used to mom doing this. So there could be external kickback. Mm-hmm. 
It also could live in our mind. I call them the feel bad. So you might be sitting on that meditation cushion, not doing meditation because you're feeling so bad about the screaming that you're feeling, hearing maybe in the living room. And can my partner take care of this? Maybe I should just leave what I'm doing and go out, yeah. right? So we put the boundary up around time and then we need to maintain it. Resources, that also applies. On days where any mom, dad, caregiver, whomever is depleted, is exhausted, right? Again, some scenarios I understand we have to show up anyway, mm -hmm. but if we don't, we're going to do the interactions that we have with our children a disservice. Cause when I have no resources left, I am so close to that point of reactivity as opposed to, you know what, this is the night I'm exhausted. I've had a terrible day. This is the night. Maybe I, I remove myself and I let my partner, you know, do the parenting responsibilities a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Right. So sometimes it's around emotional resources, us knowing when we've reached our limits and when we can honor those limits, taking the time away to reboot, recharge, regulate maybe our nervous system and then returning right to the family or to the, the experience that that's difficult um, because that is necessary a lot of times for us to fall into that regulation. But it's also helpful to know and to set ourselves up to succeed, right? If I know I'm having a bad day and I have no energy left, if I push myself and try to be there for an emotionally difficult moment, if I have someone else that could swoop in right? And, and help my child, that might be the better, mm -hmm. the, the better path at that point. So it's time, right? It's emotions and our resources, um, all of which we can define the boundary that would work a little bit better for mm -hmm. us. It might be uncomfortable to even consider doing this. Yeah. And then we have to practice doing it, right? Time and time again, and upholding that till we get to the place, which I assure you will happen, where the benefits of this new practice will start to show itself. And then those choices get a bit easier because then you feel yourself a bit more replenished. You feel yourself, you know, prioritizing yourself a little bit. And then you start to feel maybe a little bit better making that next time you make that choice a little bit easier. Yeah. A couple things came out for me. I was thinking of the word guilt kept coming up for me of like, ah, I know that I was thinking of a conversation with my uh, one of the folks who work at Seed. Rachel has a couple kids and she was sharing the story of like she's a five-year-old and a one-year-old and her partner was at work and he walks into the house as she's yelling why do these children always need something from me <laughs> and as he's like walking in the door and he was like i'm gonna take the kids for a run <laughs> and so he popped the kids in the stroller and went for a run and she called me and she's like oh my gosh like what a day and she's expressing and i was like cool what are you doing now like with this time while they're out on a run and she was like, well, I'm making, I wanted to switch the sheets on the bed and get laundry in. And she's going through this to-do list that she's going to tackle while uh, the kids are gone. And I was like, cool, cool. So when they get home, how are you going to feel at that point? If, if all you've done is go through the to-do list, yeah. um, like at what point are you going to carve out some sort of time for you, especially right now while the kids are gone? And she was like, oh, I know, I know I should. And I was like, I mean, there's no should. So you can do whatever you want. And when they get home, if you've gone through the to-do list and haven't taken time for yourself, what's the rest of your day going to look like? Is that what you want it to look like? And she was like, okay, okay. And she ended up like going and like painting and drawing. 
she's a beautiful artist. And then later that night, I got a text that was just like, thank you for making me like do something for me and not, Mm -hmm. but it's so hard when you are also like, okay, but I have this whole to-do list. And, and I think so often when we start to do those things where I know I've been in spaces where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to sit down and color with the kids and just play and, and Mm -hmm. be. And while I'm there, I have this running in the back of my head of like, okay, and you have to throw in laundry, you have to do the dishes, you have all these things that you have to do. And that feeling of guilt can come in of like, oh, because I'm choosing to play or to be or to color or to not do the Mm to-do list, I feel guilty. Yeah, I completely also resonate wholeheartedly with that. And the suggestion that I practiced um, myself and I urge everyone to practice is what I call choosing your choice, right? Once I've decided that this is how I'm going to spend my time is sitting here playing to be as present as possible. It doesn't mean that the endless to-do list of shoulds. So mine looks very much like running a business. I mean, Mm -hmm. I could be working 24 hours a day and still never, you know, still have an endless list. So I've had to learn this myself because I am someone who my anxiety over this to-do list, my shoulds were so powerful that I was able to channel my anxiety into being that creepy student who had their paper done. I'm not kidding. A week after it was, if it was, it was assigned weeks before it was due because I didn't like to know it was there. So I just, I'll just do it real quick and be done with it. And I did that as a function of that discharge, that anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. What I've come to realize as life has worn on now, I picked up on the reality that that to-do list never really ends, right? It's like kind of like that magical thing that just keeps repopulating. So that's when I came to the conclusion of there is always going to be other choices I could have made in this moment in time. And I'm only doing myself a disservice if I don't embody the choice that I've come to, because I've done this with everything, right? I'm exhausted. I'm not going to go to the gym. So I'm going to rest today. Resting for a long time for me looked like laying on the couch, beating myself up about going to the gym. (laughs) Raising my cortisol, my adrenaline, I might as well have been at the gym, right? So choose choice, right? If I do have the shoulds, which I know I have had them for quite some time and still do, if I've acknowledged that I'm playing now or I'm resting now or I'm meditating now, I'm taking a bath now, working that attentional muscle, right? Knowing that my to-do list thoughts will still be there if that's how I'm conditioned and refocusing my attention time and time again as each thought tries to pull it away. Mm-hmm. onto the moment at hand, right? Embodying the fact that I'm playing, using our, maybe our senses can be really helpful to ground as I'm sure you talked, right? Getting in my body and then practicing that. And the, the kind of mantra that I would repeat to myself to help myself become present is choose my choice. Like, okay, I didn't make the choice to go to the gym or to do the laundry right now. I made the choice to, to sit here and play. So let me just embody this choice. It actually ends up saving us a little bit of energy too to make another choice to expend energy in a different way later. So the the laundry maybe that was waiting for you, I don't have to feel so depleted because I didn't beat myself up emotionally while I was over here playing. I might actually have a little bit more energy left to do the laundry later. <laughs> totally. Oh, I love that. Choose your choice. It's so simple. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> but as people are on this journey and they're. Uh, really getting to know these inner child voices and starting to try and rewrite some narratives or uh, respond with intention rather than reacting from the subconscious. Obviously, 
our whole thing in our village is like progress over perfection. In fact, I've never left a day with tiny humans and been like, nailed it. I was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's never, I've never met a human who has left a day with tiny humans and done that. And so, um, as we are navigating progress over perfection, there are going to be times where we have to enter into the rupture and repair cycle. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at this, in this journey where you're like, oh man, like I have now noticed that I reacted and um, I didn't respond with intention. I yelled, I got scared, et cetera. What, what does that repair look like in a way that still fosters this growth and development for us? Yeah, I'm going to answer this in, in, in two connected ways. Cool. Um, I guess I'll start with the deepest part of it first a lot of times what we really need to be repairing is our relationship with ourselves, right? Extending ourselves grace, extending ourselves compassion, doing the repair in our own, to our own critical voice, right? Mm-hmm. And forgiving ourselves. Um, so starting with the deepest part of the work, which obviously takes the longest, that, that's the work there. Yeah. Because a lot of times we are, you know, it, it, it isn't really about the repair. It is, and it's about the repair with ourselves. We hold ourselves up to un, 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 unattainably high expectations. You know, again, we think that because we're aware of that childhood wound that gets touched in these moments, suddenly I should now be able to navigate it differently. I'm not. So it's the grace um, and the self-forgiveness and the repair of the relationship with ourself that I think drives most of the process. Then there is the repair of, you know, what happened in the relationship and possibly the harm you know, that, that has come based on, cause what typically happens in relationships, um, with peers, you know, relate partners, friends, et cetera, also with children, but a little less is we have the whole system, right? A stressor happens on the system. It mm-hmm. could only be one of the partners having the quote unquote issue, if you will, or the emotion, yeah. if you will. But because of the way that person might be reacting, you know, from their own fear-based subconscious protection, yeah. That likely often triggers the other person to become protective of themselves too, right? So now we have two people engaging, right, in this unconscious act at attempting to protect ourselves. Um, and I think that happens, you know, that that's a big part of of the story as we shift into this, like, I need to, I need to watch, I need to protect myself mode. Um, and it's really hard to then stabilize the system back to safety. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, 
possibility, and joy. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, so, you know, we have to understand how to, how to forgive ourselves in those moments. That's why I all, always talk about the nervous system, the body, the ways that this is our body responding, right? So it's doing what it's supposed to do actually. So maybe I can relieve the shame. I can offer my inner voice that forgiveness outer, right? What do I do in the relationship? Owning honesty, right? This is the more, the closer this relationship is, the safer you feel, Typically at a time when both of you are now no longer activated, right? We're not going to have these conversations toward repair when we're both emotionally activated. Not going to happen. Might be hours later, might be days later, Mm. but that's an important piece of this waiting until you're in as regulated of a body as you can be and assessing the person that you want to repair with as well. Whether it's again, your peer, your partner, your child, if they're in a state of nervous system overwhelm or stress or emotional activity or reactivity, not the best time either to have that conversation. We need to set ourselves up to succeed. And that's frustrating because you could be really ready and prepared and in a great space. And then the person who you want to have the conversation with or your child might've come home from school, terrible day, not the time to have it. So timing, balanced nervous system, and then acknowledging, right? Owning the part you played, um, and just sometimes a direct, honest conversation. And the closer you are to the person, a lot of the times they get it or they can understand um, what had happened. And that's when we can have a productive conversation um, with one person acknowledging what was going on behind the scenes for them and or with both parties acknowledging what that experience was, but from a different perspective, right? From that different mind space, not the subconscious reactivity, that space that we get a bit more space to choose a new response. So timing is incredibly important to set ourselves up to repair and not to just escalate into another conflict. Yeah, that's such a hard lesson for me to learn. Mm. I am like, Zach and I are very different humans in that when Mm -hmm. I I would really love to keep talking and he's like, for the love, could you leave me alone? And (laughs) I have that partner too. Her name is Lolly. Very opposite. She's like, I cannot believe I married a therapist. That is, <laughs> you talk a lot. <laughs> yep. And exactly, like, go take a long shower because it's the only place <laughs> I'll like leave him alone. And <laughs> I, but it's been so good for me because it did, it, being in partnership, being in partnership with him really was the first introduction to this for me of like, oh, when I actually do take that space, I feel calmer and am then able to navigate a conversation and not feel triggered once we start talking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And 
we also, at the very beginning of our relationship, we would write it. Like he really benefited from having time to like read something and process and then come to the conversation when he was ready. And that was really hard for me. I always, at the beginning was like, why do we always have to do this your way? And then started to realize like when we did it his way, I actually was calmer at that point too. But it was hard to learn. And I think this is something that we can also model with the tiny humans where I will say, they'll say, you know, are you, are you happy now? Are you okay? Are you calm? And I think it's fair to let them know, I'm still feeling a little frustrated. I'm going to take some space. I'm going to read my book. I'm going to calm my body Mm -hmm. and we can talk about it when we're both calm and that it's okay if we don't enter into repair right away with the tiny humans and modeling that you can take that space. And we just had a villager um, recently share this picture of her little girl. She's like arms crossed, like frustrated face sitting on a chair. And she, the, she sent me this picture in DMs. It was like, she just told me, I'm not ready to talk, mom. I'm still mad at you. <laughs> and I was like, yes, this is what love I love. That. I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. She knows she's not ready to talk yet. She's taking space and letting you know in the only way that she can, in a pretty nice way, frankly, that yeah. I'm not ready to talk to you yet. Uh, and, and then we have to like accept that answer as yeah, the adult. Ab- something I want to offer too, because I've come to realize sounding like we have very similar uh, partners (laughs) in a lot of ways in terms of we have to understand in partnership with whoever, right? Friends, uh, romantic partners Mm -hmm. and children, right? But there's another human with a nervous system on the other side. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times I am, as soon as I have an idea and I'm uncomfortable, I want to get it out. I want to get, I want the quickest path to feel better that I can get. And what I've come to realize is that the human that I've chosen partnership with Lolly, when I go at, especially, you know, with an energy and emotion behind it, she actually feels threatened. Mm -hmm. That is not, you know, that then shifts her nervous system into her flee. You know, she will actually shut down, not want to talk. And in the beginning would want to leave the home and like go like physically, which triggered my nervous system because now I'm abandoned, right? So you can see how this... But the the important part of using this illustration, a lot of us are caught in that approach withdrawal, you know, like my partner's leaving. We have to understand that it's because, not because they don't care. It's because their nervous system is acting in service of them in that moment, is acting. And if you do push, you know, to have that conversation with your partner, with your child in that moment, the the damage on the other end of it could be, you know, kind of throwing them or overtaxing their nervous system, which is just not ready to be, you know, to feel safe mm-hmm. yet. Um, so I, I talk in those terms, because I think that can help us understand because a lot of us do assign, you know, mommy doesn't care or, or, you know, or, or my partner doesn't care teaching our children and our partners that we do care. We care. We're loving is balancing myself so that I can show up as the human that I want to show up for you possibly at a later time when I can do that. So passing that, that, that lesson onto children is going to go a long way. So now you can have a child who can honor their need for safety. And then also by extension, honor others and their partners and their friends needs in that moment. Yeah. Oh, I love it so much. And it just was like a thousand like yeses with mm. similar partner structures. Mm. Um, and 
And I think when we're looking at, we, we, one of our key things that we're talking about in our village is, is trying to be somebody that your tiny human can break down to. And so many of us didn't have that person, right? Like that, that you can be someone who they don't feel responsible for your feelings, that they're not worried. Like if I tell mom, this, is she going to get anxious? If I tell dad, this, is he going to be angry and not be able to handle it? Mm -hmm. And that it starts off with these tiny little things, right? These small two-year-old emotional expressions. And then down the road, it's the, it's the big stuff. It's the stuff that really shapes. Like for me, I shared a bunch in this village as a rape survivor. At, I was raped at 14 and my parents weren't safe spaces for me to turn to at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so much of this journey for me has been realizing like, oh man, like that's, that's the key component that I didn't have there. And so much of my reparenting works, like being that human for 14 year old Alyssa and, and this can get like muddled in our village, especially within the like respectful parenting community of not setting boundaries for ourselves because we want our kids to express. I had somebody the other day who reached out and was like, well, isn't my kid going to feel abandoned if I walk away when she's having a hard emotion? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what, what are you doing for her if you stay and you're angry? And I think that there is now this idea narrative within the respectful parenting community and possibly beyond that we have to, we can't walk away from them and that we have to be next to them while they are expressing. Um, and like even looking at Zach, my husband, that literally is his nightmare is that somebody's sitting next to him while he's expressing. He's like, no, I want space. And we had a, a, an eight-year-old who was yelling, go away, mama. And she, mom was like, do I go away? I was like, she couldn't be more clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and so I guess what I'm wondering is like, what about that pendulum swing of like, nobody, we didn't have a safe space to break down to. And so now we want to make sure that no matter what, we don't leave their side. Yeah, absolutely. I can relate to that. Um, a family, a, a family narrative for so long about myself was Nicole never tells us anything, uh -huh. and and uh, something I had discovered I was experiencing within my family unit as I got older was that I didn't really feel emotionally close and bonded to them. So now hearing that with Nicole doesn't tell us anything for a long while, I wore that responsibility. I thought, okay, well, how can I be close, you know, to mom and dad and my sister in particular? when I never let them in, right? So I was like, hmm, this is my fault. I'm this secretive person who doesn't want people in. So I guess that's the role I played in not having close connected, you know, family relationships. Mm -hmm. I've come to realize, however, that why I never told them anything was that little narrative that I also described to you, right? Always something. Yeah. So if I watched consistently enough, my family, you know, erupt into, you know, a, a volcano of stress, you know, at the mail being delivered wrong, if you will, right? Yeah. What are they going to react to if I start to share with them my experiences? And for my family, it was very well intentioned because they believed, and they did come to know things that I was challenged with every now and again, if it was very obvious or you know, go to them with friend problems, my mom in particular, you know, so they would, they would start to, they would start to like notice and like see, you know, cer certain aspects of it. But ultimately, they would very well intentioned want to help me in those mm -hmm. moments. 
you're upset. So I want to make you feel better. Right. And again, very well intentioned. They want to be there. I'm sure the parents mm-hmm. that you're describing, right. I was alone as a child. I mean, yourself included Alyssa. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't have the support. So I want to be there. Um, so I share my story because I've come to realize that the environment, the climate didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. I too didn't feel like I had parents that I could share the little and the, definitely not the big things with, yeah. without one of two things happening, them swooping in to solve my problems in a way that didn't necessarily feel helpful and or it creating such a stir in the family that before you knew it, I stopped and I did become Nicole never tells us anything now that I obviously pull back and see the bigger picture. So it's about attuning to children, right? Finding that space. Cause I loved it. That, that little, when you said that I was joking to myself, I thought, Oh, that that's actually, I have a little, that little eight year old lives in my mind all the time. I don't want to. <laughs> right. But it was so beautiful when she proclaimed what she needed. That's what I was saying. The children know what they need. So it in that moment is a little more about being attuned because you might have a child that's different than you. You might be an adult who loves to have someone sitting next to you while you're expressing a feeling. You might have a child, you know, that that's more similar to your partner, Alyssa, that wants that space. So it's really kind of getting down on the level and helping the child figure out and explore what works for them and creating. And so sometimes this whole conversation we're having, right, the daily acts of self-care, the moments of that nervous system regulation, all the things that we're doing to be balanced behind the scenes, including extending the time, not being available, you know, if your child, when your child might need you in that acute moment, maybe it's 10 moments from now where you go do some breathing and you come back. That safety is what's most important because what happens when that child then shares with you, whatever they're going to share with you, that's going to be where the impact is, right? Was it actually safe for me to tell my parent or caregiver that? Mm-hmm. Or did that cause a cascade of reactions in whatever direction that didn't feel safe? And that's going to be what determines whether or not your child continues. So creating all these foundations of balance in place and knowing ourselves to know when we are available to show up and receive possibly difficult information to hear from a child, I could imagine. Mm-hmm. And or regulating ourselves through the dysregulation to enter that space of safety. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, and one of the things again, you were. It sounded like you were bringing it back to there that I pulled from that was that it is also about us. That it is looking at like, oh, I didn't feel safe as a kid, and so now I'm trying to create this space and potentially for us as the adult really diving into like safety for what safety for like my goal for the tiny humans is safety for you to express without me solving it. Right. That like, I'm not going to rush into, I need you to make, I need to make you stop feeling sad or Mm -hmm. I need to, that was what I had as a kid was the like, sure. I could tell them they weren't going to get anxious. They were just going to dismiss it because they needed me to stop. It was Mm -hmm. too much for them to handle, uh, for me to be upset. And so now my goal is that there's safety for you to express without me solving your problem and just holding space for it. But I think when we feel that desire to like, well, she's saying, go away. Can I go away? When we aren't able to attune to that, I think what we're bringing into this is the if I, if it was me and somebody walked away from me, I didn't feel safe to feel right. That I was looking Mm -hmm. for something else. And I think it's so key that you pointed out that 
these tiny humans are not us. <laughs> and, <I love> <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, it's so hard to see though. And it's yeah. hard to imagine how their little brain works and what they need if we're trying to analyze it always rather than, I, I love that you just point out just yeah. what they're saying. We, 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 we naturally filter everything through us and our experiences. So that's what I was talking about earlier. That, that's that whole of that subconscious and all of those narratives and all of those filters. We have to practice not doing that yeah. and acknowledging that the human, the little human you know, outside of me is different. You said something else really important too. Um, and just piggybacking on this idea. So, you know, we do have mirror neurons. So when I'm seeing an upset child, you know, I feel a version of the same upset. And I also feel likely some level of version of powerlessness. Mm. And that creates such a discomfort in very well-intentioned human caregivers, right? That again, the quickest way out of that discomfort is to solve the problem, you know, to take it away for, for the, for the child. And I, I, it, it is really hard to be able to contain that and to allow, you know, the child to experience a negative feeling and to find a, that they can, that they can tolerate, you know, feeling uncomfortable and then helping that child internalize that whole process and problem solving and figuring out, you know, the things that work for them that might be different than the things that work for you um, when there, you know, are quote unquote problems to be solved. I think another thing that a parents do very understandably, another us lens that's really hard to break is the maturity lens. When we're hearing our child's issue that they might be having, we have to remember that developmentally they are a child, right? So something that might seem little, or maybe you'll, you know, part of you is like, well, as you get older, you're going to realize how little this is, right? All of that thinking is natural because we've lived many more years and we do have a developmentally more mature brain and perspectives, right? We have to understand that this is a child, right? You know, not having that friend next to them at that lunch table might be the most devastating thing that happened to them. And even maybe dare I say traumatic thing, right. That is happening to them in this moment. Mm-hmm. And because you, you know, you're like, I don't even like that kid anyway. I'm happy to sit next to my kid. Right. <laughs> Not about you, right. For your kid, we have to understand developmentally that that is huge and it's their feelings. That is everything for yeah. them in that moment. Cause it's very natural for us to, to minimize it. Again, part of the reason being, I don't want to embody how uncomfortable how you know, upset you are a little human because then I'm going to be very upset myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that for me just brings up the, we don't get to decide why somebody feels what they feel or if they're allowed to feel it, right? If you gave a tiny human an orange cup instead of a purple cup and they're disappointed, it's not our job to decide whether or not they should be disappointed. They already are. <laughs> and, it was just like for me, if I was disappointed about something and somebody was trying to analyze whether or not I should feel that way, that's not helpful or empathetic. No. And at that moment, I'm just like, mm, screw you. Like I am disappointed and you're yeah. clearly not going to help me. And so yeah. I think when we're looking at this, like it's absolutely right that when we're, when we're taking our adult lens and we're like, okay, on the scale of disappointment that I felt in my life, like maybe orange cup over the purple cup for me feels like not a big deal because I have felt things that feel heavier or bigger in a disappointment sense, but that doesn't matter for this tiny human because they're feeling what they're feeling. Yeah. As you were saying, I'm smiling, Alyssa, because you you couldn't be more just like objectively right. They're having (laughs) the feeling complete with the neurotransmitters, the hormones, maybe even the nervous system reactivity. You're seeing it. That's, that's, (laughs) 
existing in their bodies, right? Again, holistic. I'm so, it's so mm-hmm. important. That's there. That is real and valid. So you making an attribution on the belief or whatever the expectation it was that caused that disappointment is already too late. They're already in the midst of it. So <laughs> I kind of giggled when you said that. I thought, damn, that was, that couldn't be the most objective thing that you're pointing out. That is true. They're feeling it. Right. And as, yeah. I, as a human, as an adult, I mean, there's still moments, you know, even in my partnership where very, and I understand the perspective because I can embody that now where I'm having a feeling and I'm just having it. And I, I understand all of why this is happening. <laughs> I get it. I'm in my feeling and I'm committed to it in this moment and I'm going to honor it. And when anyone, even my partner, especially looks at me with, you know, the rational, logical thing that I'm going to come to, you know, I'm gonna get, I, I got it. It's there. I'm just not tapping into it right now because I'm just here and I'm going to feel this, but it's one of the most infuriating things. And it starts honoring as the adult too in us, likely this happened to us, right? Mm-hmm. We probably had so many moments, small, big, right? Where, where that were missed, that were invalidated. I talk a lot about invalidating our reality and how mm-hmm. that starts, you know, not in necessarily intentional or direct ways, but in so many micro ways that result in us being disconnected from that intuition, right? That child is like, I'm mad and I'm going to be mad, right? Now we become an adult that talks herself out of the man that doesn't feel like we should be right that is doing all of this stuff separating ourselves from our core existence which is in that moment i'm mad for a very valid reason something was crossed i am violated etc and it doesn't really matter why like it's i'm just there (laughs) yeah totally and i think a huge part of the reparenting work here in order to show up and do that with kiddos to hold that space is is giving that gift to ourselves of like allowing out we in creating the set method in the adult child interactions portion, we outlined five phases of emotion processing. And the first one is allowing yourself to feel. And it sounds so simple, but so many of us jump to phase five of five, which is problem solving. (laughs) And we miss the entire process. And And in doing so, we just keep like invalidating, as you were saying, this pattern keeps repeating for us as adults. And so then when a kid has a big emotion, we don't know how to go through these steps Mm -hmm. because we haven't practiced it with ourselves. Yeah. And it's understandable. The problem solved is discomfort removed. So sign me up, however... And I think this is just an extension of what I think is kind of ep- epidemic level for humanity, which is living by our minds. We lead with our thinking mind. I think it's primed in the school system as it exists now. And we are, you know, we're cultivated and we're rewarded for thinking our way through life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm the biggest believer in thinking isn't the way to even solve problems, especially emotional ones. So a lot of us think ourselves into a corner where we actually can't solve the problem because we have just as many, you know, for votes as against votes for the same thing. And this is why we're indecisive and we actually don't know what to do because we're thinking, we're trying to solve life from our top down as opposed to reconnecting with ourself and with that guidance that lives in each of us that is very pure in children before we become disconnected for it and feeling our way, um, which does mean reconnecting with our body and learning how to feel emotions. Yeah. Oh, I think it's so huge. Yes. So much. Yes. So I know I said that you're the queen of Instagram, but if somebody for some reason on this planet isn't following you, where can folks connect with you and learn from you? You're such a beautiful teacher. 
Thank you for saying that, Alyssa. That means a lot. So my yeah. the main hub is the Instagram, the.holistic.psychologist. Uh, pretty much anything and everything that I'm doing always gets run through there. I have a nice link tree up um, with information for my virtual healing community, the Self Healer Circle, um, which is closed now, but will reopen again in the fall. But the Instagram is the hub. Um, I'm, I'm there every day showing up, healing, writing content to put out there to help others heal. So come join me amazing community we have of other people doing the work. Yeah, it's incredible. And I've also found like a lot of benefit from your YouTube videos. You are, yeah, you're, you are a very good teacher. Um, actually my, I'm as a teacher by profession, I uh, like, I connect with how well you can take concepts that for so many of us we're coming to it for the first time or we have never connected to this. And I think you do a really good, great job of kind of simplifying things that can be complex in a way that's digestible and consumable. I appreciate you saying that so much, Alyssa. That has been a passion of mine since I started, um, you know, a practice in therapy because I, I, I always felt for myself included and for the field in general, my clients, uh, that some of these concepts were really important, but I, I don't think many of us, and there's not much literature there on how to apply practically some yeah. of these things. I talk about ego work, about repair, right? Th- these things aren't new. I didn't make them up, right? You know what I mean? These existed, right. but the way they've been talked about, I, I think has always been a bit unapproachable for so many of us. So the fact that my work comes across as, as understandable first and foremost, and as practically applicable, I mean, that means everything to me. That's what has been utmost of importance to me. And that's been a big driving force in the Instagram account um, is putting this language out there. Uh, and the tools out there for free for anyone who can gain value. So the fact that that translates from a, a fellow teacher, thank you. Thanks yeah, a lot. totally. Thank you. Thanks for doing the work. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was... Steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. 
We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking